These uh, sessions in the morning will be uh, devoted to uh, formal instruction and we'll try to leave enough time at the end so that if there's anything unclear um, we can further clarify that. Tomorrow Martin will start with the actual um, teaching on the questioning practice that we'll be doing but today I think it's perhaps helpful just to find a practice that allows us to settle to become more still within ourselves, more grounded, more present, a space in which we can become more aware of what we've brought with us, all of the stories, maybe worries, anxieties or plans, concerns that are preoccupying us, and to notice that that's an entirely natural and uh, non-problematic part of what it means to be human. But on a retreat, we're trying to open up a space within ourselves in which we can be with that in a somewhat different way. We're not trying to uh, stamp out thoughts or emotions or uh, troubling memories that's simply what our organisms generate. It's not a problem at all, and we shouldn't feel that we're, we're failing or we're not good meditators if um, these kind of things continuously assail us. Uh, we create just another problem by trying to um, suppress or get rid of such things. Fundamentally, uh, meditation is a radical kind of self-acceptance. It's being able to say yes to whatever is coming up. Just as much as the rooks might make a lot of noise in the trees, our minds make, make a lot of noise in our heads. And there really shouldn't be thought to be much difference between the two. Now some of you may have a practice um, in which you find uh, useful to uh, settle, to still, to calm your mind. So please just do that. I'd like to uh, reflect for this period on how we might use the breath as a means of grounding and stilling and uh, opening up such a non-reactive space within our minds. And I'd like to go back to a passage that we find in the early Buddhist canon, in the Samyutta Nikaya, the <clears throat> connected discourses of the Buddha, where we have an episode in which um, someone comes to one of the Buddha's followers during a three-month rains retreat when the whole community gathers in a park and they dedicate themselves to doing a lot of meditation practice. And perhaps not surprisingly, someone asks... Um, 
Well, what about him, the Buddha? What does he do when he meditates? Um, they might have had the idea that perhaps, you know, being the Buddha, he didn't have to meditate anymore. He could have time off. <coughs> so the monk who's been asked this then goes to the Buddha and uh, poses the question to him and says, well, what do we tell these people? And the Buddha's reply is that um, they should tell such inquirers that while he uh, spends his time in retreat during the rains, he cultivates, he the Buddha, cultivates <clears throat> concentration through mindfulness of breathing. And he then adds that um, the reason for this is because Mindfulness of breathing <clears throat> is a sacred dwelling, a dignified dwelling, and a Tathagata's dwelling. And for that reason, he dwells during the three-month rains, focusing on mindfulness of the breath. Now, the term I think that is uh, central here is the idea of dwelling. Um, in Pali or Sanskrit, this is the word vihara, which nowadays has come to mean a dwelling for monks or nuns. A monastery is a vihara. But the word is here being used in a much more uh, uh, metaphoric sense. In other words, uh, the breath, meditation on the breath, being mindful of the breath, is a way of dwelling. We'll find the same term used when the Buddha speaks of emptiness. He says emptiness too is, some, is, is something in which you dwell. Now the word dwelling, or we could also translate it as abiding, we could also just simply say living in the sense that we live in France. We dwell, we abide, we live in France. Dwelling is one of these uh, experiences that is so fundamental to our lives that it's almost difficult to get enough distance from it to reflect on what it actually means. What does it mean to live in France or to, to dwell in your home in London or wherever it might be? There's something so primordially human to our dwelling. We're always dwelling. We cannot not live somewhere or dwell somewhere. But what does that mean? And how would that relate to the practice of meditation? In what sense does it mean to dwell or to live or to abide in mindfulness of breathing? I think the first um, point to uh, bear in mind is that dwelling is always something that requires um, an embodied activity. Uh, it's very much where our bodies are, is where we dwell, where we live. <coughs> So I think this also again points to how mindfulness of the breath or, or any kind of meditation really 
is first and foremost um, a, an embodied act. And as we sit here in this room, uh, particularly if we sit for longish periods of time, we cannot but become aware of our embodiment, whether that's due to pain in our knees or uh, stiffness in our back or whether it's simply that we find by learning to sit comfortably there's a great ease, uh, a great pleasure actually in just being able to sit. But that ease, that sense of well-being is completely uh, grounded in the way we sit. Now in Zen or Son, of course, we often find emphasis on the very act of sitting. And in fact, the expression zazen or jamson uh, means seated meditation. And Dogen famously said that if, you, if your posture is correct, then you are already awake. There's something about the physical posture that in itself um, resonates with a certain quality of being present. So I think it's always useful to bear this in mind. And it's interesting also to notice how quickly we resent sitting still. And the mind has... Um, any number of more interesting alternatives available. We drift off. Uh, we go back to the past, or we wander off into the future, or we get uh, simply caught up in a train of associative thoughts that might just be like, as they say in the Buddhist texts, uh, a monkey swinging from one branch, catching onto another, swinging onto the next branch, without really any particular uh, rhyme or reason. We just kind of drift through the trains of associated images and ideas and memories and so on. Anything, it would seem, than just grounding our attention in our bodies, in our breath. In other words, instead of dwelling in our embodied, breathing, physical experience that's going on right now. So what the mindfulness of breathing does is to bring us back constantly to our embodied experience here and now. And it may be pleasant, it might be unpleasant, but in either case it grounds us in this moment on this little patch of earth where we are dwelling right now. So in what ways then when, uh, does, does the Buddha understand this to be um, <clears throat> what he calls a, um, a sacred dwelling? That mindfulness of the breathing is a sacred dwelling. Uh, the word in Pali is Brahma Vihara. And this is sometimes translated as divine abode. And it's usually associated with either loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, or equanimity. These are called the four 
divine abidings. But in this text, he also includes mindfulness of the breathing. Now, it might seem odd, in a way, that a tradition that has no real room for the language of God, or Brahma in this case, um, still uses uh, this very theistic term. Um, and we have to, I think, reflect on, on, on what it might therefore mean in a tradition that is otherwise non-theistic. There is no ultimate creator of the universe or some divine principle that animates the cosmos or however we might define God. But nonetheless, the Buddha seems to still be using this word. I suspect it has to do with... Um, uh, a certain quality of transcendence. Acknowledging that our experience is far more than what we tend to be egotistically preoccupied with. And with mindfulness of the breathing or any meditation that brings us into a clear and open and uh, calm attention to what's going on, we cannot but, in a way, realise that we are not the be-all and the end-all of experience or life. The, this moment's experience um, uh, completely transcends uh, our own petty concerns that might be uh, <clears throat> taking up all of our time and our thoughts. We open ourselves through the senses to what we hear and what we see and what we smell and what we taste and what we touch. Um, we become aware of how fleeting this experience can be, how everything is just a process of, of sensations, of emotions, of feelings, of ideas that come and go. And that we are at most just a kind of tentative locus for the world going on. The world that, uh, by its very nature, exceeds us, is something more than we can contain in our thoughts and in our ideas and in our preoccupations. And so perhaps it's in this sense uh, the mindfulness of the breathing um, opens us up to what exceeds our own personal preoccupation. It confronts us with a world, and a world that the more we pay attention to it, um, uh, continues to unravel and unfold and to extend way beyond uh, this particular point that I may be holding on to as me. So perhaps it's in that sense that mindfulness of the breathing both embodies our experience but also, paradoxically perhaps, <clears throat> um, extends that of which we are currently conscious into something almost infinite. The other expression, or the next expression, <coughs> I'm sorry, that the, that the Buddha uses here is 
Arya Vihara. Uh, it's a dignified dwelling. The word Arya has unfortunately in our time become very badly corrupted. Um, but long before uh, that happened, it was a term that really just uh, stood for a certain nobility. Arya means uplifted, literally, raised up. And so there's something about being mindful, being present, being in an upright, uh, poised posture that uh, dignifies us in a way. Uh, that this awareness is one where we're called upon to reflect on uh, what matters most deeply for us. That a retreat is not just a, a kind of a mindless entertainment to pass the time, but it's a place where we come to reflect uh, on the deeper questions of our lives. And these might be very difficult, ultimate, ontological questions about what it means to exist, or it might simply be, how can I come to terms with this moral dilemma that I'm facing at the moment and I can't seem to resolve? How do I come to terms with this, this core relationship in my life that seems to be fracturing or breaking down? How can I come to terms with this decision I need to make as to what I'll do, how I'll work, how I'll make my livelihood? Issues that are um, <clears throat> not simply resolvable. And a retreat is very often a way to have the space and the time just to sit with those issues. And I, I'm sure there's many in the room who have something on their minds of this order. Maybe it has to do with the death or the illness of someone close to us. And the point of a retreat is not to come here to solve that problem, but in a way to allow ourselves to touch into our own basic uh, clarity and intelligence and dignity, to just be with that issue. And if there is a solution, it might or it might not occur in the retreat. That's not the point, really. But it's to allow ourselves to be with it in a more in a more intimate, um, in a more present, in a less judgmental and perhaps a less fearful way. And I suspect that all of that is somehow caught up in the idea of Arya, of no nobility or dignity. There's clearly a, a moral or an ethical dimension here to our practice, which might simply look as though we're just sitting still watching our breath, but we're not automatons and the breath is not just like a bellows action, but rather it's a, uh, a focus that allows us to somehow align ourselves um, with what we hold to be most true and most good in our lives. And to use that and to recover that as a way to respond uh, to whatever is coming up, um, you know, not in a petty, trivial way, but deep down in what really concerns us deeply. And the third expression the Buddha uses is Tathagata Vihara. 
<coughs> now, Tathagata uh, is a word that's usually left untranslated when you read uh, English versions of, of Buddhist uh, discourses. It's broadly understood to be synonymous to the Buddha. It's usually capitalized, capital T, Tathagata. And when it is uh, translated, it's usually rendered as something like uh, the one who has gone to suchness. Um, well, you might understand what that means, but I'm afraid I don't. And um, I po- I've pondered about the meaning of this word for an awful long time. And only recently, and to some degree through the help of the Pali scholar Richard Gombridge, uh, do I think I have a better understanding of what it's about. Um, it's actually a very simple word. Tata means like this. Gata does literally mean gone, but as Gombridge points out, in this context it's simply being used to mean something like is. Like you have, for example, another word in Pali, avijagata. Avija means ignorance, and gata means gone. But you wouldn't translate it in English as one who has gone to ignorance. What it means is basically an ignorant person, someone who is ignorant. So Tathagata basically means someone who is just like this. One who is just so. And to support this, there's a a, a passage in in the Anguttara Nikaya uh, where the Buddha actually offers a definition of Tathagata. And he says the Tathagata is so called because uh, what he says is what he does. And what he does is what he says. Remembering though in Pali, there's no, you can't d- differentiate between he and she. Uh, so what she says is what she does, what she does is what she says. In other words, a Tathagata is a way of talking about a person or, or someone um, who has gone beyond uh, dissimulation and pretense. Um, there's a uh, there's no mismatch between what we say, and that means what we tell ourselves as much as what we tell others, and what we actually do. There is a, 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 a unity. There, there is no deception. There is an honesty. And so the Tathagata is very close, I think, to what in song or Zen they call the true person, the Chen Zhen, which is a, a pre-Buddhist Chinese term that was in the first translations from Sanskrit to Chinese, the word they used to translate the word Arahant, the saint or the, the liberated saint. But literally it is the true person. And as we might discover as we go through the week, uh, we have this, fa- this famous phrase of Lin Chi, who talks of the true person of no status or rank. So my sense is that the mindfulness of the breathing 
is a dwelling in which we are totally true to ourselves. That's what it means to say a Tathagata's dwelling. The Tathagata doesn't have to refer just to the Buddha. The Tathagata refers to that possibility that all of us have in each moment uh, to be true to ourselves. In other words, to not pretend, to not project an image or um, a picture of ourselves. Again, we can do that to ourselves. Uh, that is actually not really in accord with how we actually are, how we actually feel. There's no contradiction, there's no disconnect between what we say, what we do, what we do, what we say. So mindfulness of the breathing, therefore, or strictly speaking, any kind of simple meditative act in which we just sit or stand or walk without dissimulation or pretense, is about allowing ourselves to be true, to in some sense be completely naked to ourselves, to others, to see through the storyline that we often automatically generate in our monologue uh, that's running a commentary, which is often maybe rather self-gratifying, but may not really reflect how we actually feel, how we actually are in that moment. So mindfulness of the breath coming into the body, opening ourselves to what transcends us, being truthful to what matters most deeply for us, allows us in a way to be one who just, uh, who, who is just so. To come to that sort of original simplicity uh, and honesty with ourselves. So I've expanded on what might actually for many of us be a much simpler matter of just learning to be still and to be quiet and to be present. But I think it's important to not think of meditation as a becoming proficient in certain techniques or exercises, but acknowledging how even in the most simple act of watching the breath, which even the Buddha describes as being his meditation when he goes on retreat, also carries with it um, a whole way of understanding and of um, uh, appreciating, of um, morally and ethically being uh, conscious and aware and of being somehow as true to ourselves as we possibly can. So whether you do mindfulness of the breathing today, um, or whether you have another practice that you would prefer to do, try to hold it within that broad framework of value, uh, and of, of, of meaning, and of honesty. I think that would be a good way to uh, lay a foundation for the practices that we'll be doing as we go through the rest of the week. Please come in. Now we have um, a little bit of time. If there's anything of a practical nature that you'd like to ask at this point, uh, either Martin or I could respond to that. Um, more philosophical type questions we can look at in the evening.
Okay. Yeah, not yet. Ah, yes. The eyes, yeah. Well, um, there really is no hard and fast rule about this. Um, and different teachers will have different approaches to it. There's absolutely nothing of this in the, in, in the classical text at all. Um, but the way I understand it is that it, it, the, the eyes are, in a sense... Uh, one of many elements that we can learn to use in cultivating clarity and stillness. If your mind is drowsy and you're getting dull, open your eyes. If you're feeling a little bit hyperactive, close your eyes. Or you may just like to settle in way, this is the way I was taught, uh, to just keep your eyes half open or half closed depending on what kind of person you are. Uh, but whatever you do, don't focus on a particular thing in front of you. Leave your eyes half open, half closed, in a kind of unfocused sort of gaze. But adjust them, I would suggest, according to how you are in that moment. And see what effect it has. Uh, it may wake you up a bit to open them, it might calm you down a bit to close them. Uh, but that's for you to find out. Uh, and so, again, it's something you need to work with to adjust and find. The, the, the real question <coughs> is, how can I sit in a way that optimizes the possibility of being clear and still? That's the, the point. That's the goal. If, ho if your eyes open does not help in that regard, close them, or vice versa. Do you want to say something? Yeah, no, I, the only thing is, as long as you don't worry every two minutes about it, I would say, in a way, to, to trust a little in what your body does. You know, and so sometimes naturally we close them a little, sometimes we just have them half open just in front of us. But yeah, the, we do not have a dogmatic position about it. There is no sacred way to have the eyes when we sit in meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.